Mentor Sessions by Broadway Direct. In this podcast, we have in-depth conversations with Broadway's brightest, bringing you what's new, what's noteworthy, and what's coming next to a stage near you. I'm your host, Elisa Gardner, and this spring we'll be speaking with some of the artists whose talents are standing out at a very busy time in a very busy Broadway season. Before our conversations with each week's guests this season, we will be kicking off each episode with a look at what's new on Broadway each week with Broadway Direct's own Paul Art Smith. And Paul is with us. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Busy time of year. <laughs> yeah, I know. We've we've reached the end of the season, but also just Ooh. the beginning of a lot of other excitement in a way. Yeah, award season. We're <laughs> at the start of award season now. That's Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but I thought we'd get into some of the news that's been announced this week as well. So this last week, it was announced that Barry Manilow's new musical Harmony will open on Broadway this fall at the Ethel Barrymore Theater. This That's musical right. comes, yeah, it comes to Broadway right after a successful run off Broadway last spring. And the music, as mentioned, is by Manilow and features a book and lyrics by Bruce Sussman. And directing is Tony Award winner Warren Carlyle. That's right. And uh, this musical has been a long time in the works. They started mm-hmm. working on it actually decades ago, inspired by uh, the real story of the comedian Harmonist, a German vocal group consisting of six men. Three of them were Jewish who enjoyed a lot of success in the late 1920s and early 30s. And then the Third Reich came along and things did not go well after that. Um, mm-hmm. And I saw this musical off-Broadway and um, it, it was quite moving and uh, had a wonderful cast. I'm not sure. I have to look at the press release again, whether Chip Zian <laughs> and... Um, uh, yeah, no ca- focus was in it. Yeah. Have any casting been announced There's yet? There's no casting yet, no. But yeah. yeah, it'd be great to see those names along with it. I didn't get to see it off-Broadway, but I have also heard about it for so long. As you said, it's been in the work for quite quite a long time. So it's nice to see it finally land on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. And what a nice little dream come true for Barry Manilow, who you <laughs> know has done some things in his career, has performed on Broadway. But I believe this is his first musical that he's written uh, that he's composed that's going to be on broadway so yeah i can't wait to hear that score and also coming to broadway next season um or i guess it's kind of almost about to be this season because this past season just ended but the shark is broken will begin performances Mm -hmm. at the golden theater this july this is a new behind the scenes comedy about the making of the iconic film jaws and it comes to broadway after critically acclaimed runs at the edinburgh festival the fringe festival and on london's west end and it's written by Ian Shaw and Joseph Nixon, with Shaw also starring in the show as his own father, Robert Shaw. I've never watched yeah. Jaws, so this oh, was yeah. I, wa- I watched like clips and pieces in like film class before, but I'll definitely be giving that finally a watch. Like I know it's like in- insane that I haven't watched it yet, but I will be giving it a watch, and I'm very excited for this. It just sounds like right up my alley. Like a behind the scenes comedy is just always enjoyable to watch. Oh, yeah. And this comes to us from uh, the West End. And, you know, the Brits love to send up American culture. I I thought of that when Jerry Springer passed this past year, Mm. uh, rather this past week, you know, with uh, Jerry Springer, the opera. Yes. Um, (laughs) That was a while ago, but this seems (laughs) to be uh, part of that continuing pattern and um, should be interesting. I mean, I wouldn't advise you uh, you watch that movie alone if you you haven't seen it yet. I know. um, Jumpy, jumpy. Yeah, but definitely, you know, I I don't expect there. Well, who knows? Maybe they'll have some, you know, little gory, scary tidbits in the show. I I don't know much about it. I I know it's got really good reviews in London, obviously. So it's coming here. It's uh, from the Jaws of Defeat, a Hollywood story. That's what 
press release is telling us. So we will see. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I love that it's coming in the summer, like, you know, summer blockbuster like film and now summer, hopefully blockbuster play. That's right. Now, <laughs> maybe maybe this is starting a trend. Like this is when the action plays come. I, yeah, I, I know. know. You can do it. You can do a, a two show day <laughs> with Back to the Future as a matinee. And this is the evening. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Film adaptations. Right. Yes. Yeah. And after rumors circulating, it was officially revealed this week that the revival of Sweeney Todd will release a cast recording. Of course, this yeah. is the production led by Josh Groban and Annalie Ashford. And it seemed like inevitable that this would happen. But I can't wait to listen to it when it eventually drops. No release date has been announced yet, but you know, we'll be I'll be searching for when that does come out. Yeah. This is one of my favorite musicals and mm-hmm. uh the score is just magnificent and you know this uh, for this production they have that full 26 piece orchestra uh, they have Josh Groban leading the cast who um you know obviously has this magnificent baritone tenor voice mm-hmm. and it, it is a beautifully sung production uh, 100% uh, maybe that that's the thing that struck me about it maybe even the most more than anything else about it the the vocals are beautiful the orchestrations the the orchestra, you know, everything about it sonically was sumptuous. So I'm looking forward to hearing this recording. Yeah, I can't wait to add a new, like, full sounding recording to the repertoire mm-hmm. of Sweeney Todd cast recordings. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. To the uh, this this will well, the original is the original. Yes. I, I mean, I to date myself, I I played that when it came out, and I was I don't know. I mean, I actually discovered it after it came out. I was in high mm-hmm. school. I was years, some years after it debuted on <laughs> on Broadway, and and I just listen to it over and over and over again till I had every bar memorized. It's just one of the greatest scores there is and, and one of the greatest stories, you know, just a, a terrific, terrific show. So it'll be nice to have it recaptured to listen to, you know, on Apple yeah. and Spotify and all that. Yeah. And this might very well be a current high school student's introduction to the show. And what a great way to oh, yeah. find out about the show. Absolutely. But don't ignore the Angela Lansbury <laughs> uh, Ontario. Just, just this, check them both out. Check them yeah. Both yeah. Out. This will lead right into that one. They'll have to stream both of them. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then on also on Broadway this week, saw the final slate of openings for the 22, 2023 Broadway season, which was you know filled with so many shows and this mm. week was no exception we had goodnight oscar opening monday summer 1976 opening tuesday new york new york opening on wednesday and then to close out the season was the science sydney brewstein's window opening mm-hmm. on thursday after only beginning previews this past week uh, two days before their official opening yeah in fact i as a critic am not going to be able to see it till next week because oh, wow. they're just starting previews so you know reasonably they want to give the actors some time even though they did it previously at the brooklyn academy of music it's a new venue um different stage so they want to give um the cast and the crew time to kind of get their bearings before they invite uh invite us in <laughs> yeah. with our pens and our claws and all that yeah. Oh, yeah it's just an incredible production and i absolutely love oscar isaac and rachel brosnahan and they're doing such great work here i got to see it yeah. at bam and yeah, yeah, yeah great production i'm glad it could fit in there it definitely snuck in there which i think makes this season even more exciting and i'm glad yeah. more got to experience lorraine hansberry's work that you know this is not one of her more produced plays the obvious one being the incredible raisin in the sun but mm-hmm. I'm glad that this also gets, you know, to shine its light on Broadway. Yeah, they snuck it in right under the wire. So <laughs> that'll be a, a treat. 
Definitely. And new on Broadway Direct this week are tons of first look images. So head on over to see new photos of the current Broadway cast of Hamilton, New York, New York, and tons of those other shows we just mentioned. And also, by the time you listen to this episode, this year's Tony Award nominations will have been announced. And you can head on over to Broadway Direct for the full list of nominees. I know, I'm jealous of them. They already know. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) And as always, you can head to Broadway Direct for the latest coverage and news on Broadway, as well as across all of our social platforms at Broadway Direct. Thank you, Paul. And yeah, it'll be a lot of fun to kind of sort through those Tony nominations next week. (laughs) Definitely. Um, Right now, we are going to go on to our conversation. Our guests today are playwright David Lindsay Abair and composer Janine Tesori. Their musical adaptation of David's play, Kimberly Akimbo, is currently at the Booth Theater following a hugely successful run downtown at the Atlantic Theater Company. the Pulitzer Prize winning author of plays such as Rabbit Hole, Fuddy Mears, Good People, and Wonder of the World, in addition to musicals such as High Fidelity and Shrek the Musical. Janine was his collaborator on Shrek, and her numerous other beloved musicals include the Tony Award winning Fun Home and Thoroughly Modern Millie, as well as Carolina Change and Violet. Janine, David, welcome to Stage Door Sessions. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Great. Well, we should start by saying that Kimberly Akimbo, the musical, had already won multiple awards by the time it arrived on Broadway last fall, uh, including, I think, the Drama Desk, the Lucille Lortel, Outer Critics Circle, New York Drama Critics Circle, a whole bunch. And the play was also critically acclaimed when it premiered, which was more than 20 years ago. Um, For those who are unfamiliar with it, Kimberly is a teenage girl with a rare genetic disorder that causes her to age at about four times the rate a person would ordinarily. She also has to juggle this with some colorful family issues and adolescent drama. Uh, I read in an interview that you both did last year that you, David, had spoken to Janine about wanting to write a musical the way you wrote a play, with you and your collaborator taking as long as you needed to just figure things out, and that Janine suggested this very bittersweet and often very funny story with a deep inner life uh, would be a good candidate for that. So tell us a bit about that conversation as you remember it and when and how this started evolving. Well. Gosh, it was an awful long time ago now. We were <laughs> in the midst, maybe towards the end of working on Shrek the Musical. And we had just a really great collaboration. We loved working with each other. We had very similar sensibilities and senses of humor. And um, Shrek was wonderful for in lots and lots of ways. But there were a lot of people involved. Um, and lots of people with lots of opinions. And... I said, gosh, this is, is it always this hard? And Janine said, yeah, it's, it's, you know, often it can be this hard. And I said, you know, with my plays, it's so much easier. It's just me by myself and things can be <laughs> as bad for as long as they need to be bad. Cause I, you know, until I figure it out, I don't know what it is. And I said, I'd love to write a musical in that way. It would just be me and you and nobody giving notes until we're ready to show it to people. And then she's like, yeah, let's do that. As a matter of fact, why not adapt one of your plays? And I was like, but my plays are my plays. Why would we do that? And as you mentioned, she pulled Kimberly Kimbo off a shelf and she said, you know, I think there's a lot here that could be musicalized. This feels like a musical to me. Hmm. What was it about the play other than the general things I mentioned, Janine, that that made you think that? 
Part of it is it's a little interesting um, to talk about because some of it is a, is not rational for me. Some of it is sort of a gut feeling that I've learned over the thousand years that I've been doing this, that it just some some things sing to me and some don't. And this play has such a deep singing voice. And it did immediately when we were talking about our next um, project. And I think David writes characters that are incredibly grounded, incredibly funny, and and people I recognize. I recognize them from from the the real world, and um, I just felt it in my gut that what they wanted and what the world had given them were very different things, and that's a a, a wonderful sort of fountain from which to sing. Yeah. David, you also said in that interview that when you wrote the play Kimberly Akimbo, you had a specific actress in mind for the part, Mary Louise Burke, who's wonderful. Um, Victoria Clark plays Kimberly in the musical, and she is just hilarious and heartbreaking in this very challenging role, which requires her to capture the energy and body language of a teenager and the precociousness of this particular teenager, while obviously being an older woman. Um, was Victoria someone you thought of or that, that both of you thought of pretty early in the process? I'll let Janine talk because actually I think Janine was the person, the person who first mentioned Vicki Clark. Is that right, Janine? Uh, yeah, we we were, you know, when you're developing, you have the, the uh, benefit of starting to figure out what the show is and what it isn't. And the development of the show, I think, is it's important. It's hard that it takes so long, but I think it's important that it takes so long because you get close to it and and then you work with different people to make sure that the material works for different kinds of people, not just one person. And I I serve on a board with Vicky on the Kurt Weil Foundation, which I love. And I was looking at her twinkly eyes one day and when we were talking about it, I, I said to David, Vicki Clark has the, the twinkliest eyes. I mean, she just has this thing. She has a glint in her. She just has something. What What about her? And because she's quite stunning, we weren't sure that, frankly, that she was old enough. Um, and it's delightful to also say to actors, I'm not sure you're old enough <laughs> when they're in their <laughs> And they're yeah. in their 40s, 50s. It's like, I don't know. You got to age up a little bit. That's a delightful thing to say. You're going to have to take off some makeup. Um, and so we talked about her and to her. And she she was, we sang through some of the things and she was very game. I'll yeah. just add only because it's it was interesting to me that you could not find two actresses that are more different than Mary Louise Burke and Victoria Clark. So it's a, it was an interesting shift for me to think of it in a different way. But weirdly, as different as those two actors are, they both have this amazing, young, pixie sort of spirit inside of them. And even though their shapes are completely different, there is just this vitality, this inner teenager that comes out of each of them in very different ways. And so Vicky's performance is nothing like Mary Louise Burke's performance and vice versa. And yet they both embody these characters fully and in completely different ways. Obviously, Mary Louise only had the play. And so all of her inner life had to be expressed through subtext. And Victoria Clark just has to open that glorious mouth of hers and sing her heart. And so the storytelling is different, but the spirit of each of them is weirdly uh, connected in a way. Right. 
Janine, your scores have captured so many different worlds. With Kimberly Akimbo, you have a very specific setting, New Jersey, which gets teased considerably and, and wittily in your lyrics, David, in the late 1990s. And of course, you also have to take in the different themes and the moods presented here and the very specific characters who also range from this lovely nerdy boy who prefends Kimberly to her kind of sociopathic aunt. <laughs> and Justin Cooley and Bonnie Milligan are also wonderful in those roles, I should say. How did you make that all sing, as you put it? Oof. Uh, I like writing very, very different worlds. I think that, uh, you know, being a sort of a perpetual student, someone who didn't go to graduate school, and I think I, I don't think I know, I have a, a, a pretty strong imposter syndrome because of that. So I feel like I constantly am trying to study and be better and, and know more. And so every show to me, is an opportunity to learn more about, you know, yes, myself and my family, but also the world and, and different people who inhabit it. And, and every world has a different sonic, you know, a different texture. And I think the world of this, uh, I have all my notes. When David and I first started meeting in 2012, I had notes about clocks and windshield wipers and metronomes and time and ticking. And I reread Our Town, which is uh, one of my favorite plays and one of David David's favorites. Oh, yeah. And just trying to understand, you know, how I felt about the, the 90s and kids. Uh, David has a beautiful description about the time and it's, and, you know, before kids had cell phones. And, and that's a different kind of world. Um, time is very different now than it was. It feels very different, even though a month is still a month. It doesn't feel the same way. The instantaneous nature of it, uh, the lack of waiting. And so I, I, that all, I just start taking and gathering things. And David and I talk about long, long before notes get written, we talk about what the, what the world would sound like, what they would be listening to, what the tempo is, what the rhythms are of their, their lives, how the skating rink sounds, how it sounds like when she waits and all of these things. And, and the beauty to me that I think part of this musical is on the head of a pin that it's just fragile. And part of it is absolutely sturdy as hell. And the comedy is raucous and funny. So you have all of these ahead of a pin and then a sledgehammer. So it's, yeah. it, it all starts to translate into notes for me at some point. Can yeah. I just add only because Janine's not going to praise herself enough. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me let me say one of my favorite things about Janine is that in addition to being the brilliant composer that she is, she also happens to be one of the best dramatists and dramaturgs that I've ever worked with, that she understands characters' inner lives and, and character arcs in a way that, you know, not all composers think about this stuff. So every song that she writes is an extension of that character and the character's inner lives and, and, and longings, but also most specifically their voice, that each song sounds exactly like the character in the show. And so mm. it's hard to pin down any of Janine's songs or shows because they're all so grounded in the specificity of the world that's created in that show. And inside that world, it, the specificity of each character on that stage. Um, and that's something that is astounding and makes my job incredibly easy because of it. 
You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> there is certainly specificity in this uh, in this show. Kimberly's condition is, I believe, roughly b- based on a genetic disorder called progeria, um, which is highly unusual. I read somewhere that the odds of having a first child with progeria are like one in four million. But I'm sure this show has also resonated with kids who have other disabilities and with their parents, their family members, just people who know people who are struggling um, with disabilities. Have you gotten feedback from people in those situations and was representing disability authentically, even in the context of a show that can be very funny, something you thought about a lot? Um, it's something that we talked about a lot. Um, so yes, something that we thought about a lot. Um, just a couple things to be very clear. It's not progeria. It is a little oh. like it's it is a little right. like progeria. It has lots of things in common with progeria, but way more things not in common with progeria. So I just want to make that very clear. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I yeah, I thought it was uh, perhaps inspired by progeria is um, is what I had read in, in various places, but clearly it's not a specific disease. Right, right. Yeah. So I just want to be responsible about, you know, people that have encountered progeria or live with progeria, and this is not a progeria story. Um, right. As far as um, we've heard from a lot of people with uh, disabilities, but also anyone, the play is very much about otherness in many ways. And so we try to be responsible in that way. And it is incredibly gratifying when people with any kind of otherness tells us that they feel seen by the show. And so, yes, absolutely. That meant that means people with disabilities or kids with disabilities. It also means, you know, someone who grew up fat or someone who grew up as a gay kid or any time. And we all feel othered in some way. And that, that is what I think holds the show together and why it appeals to Mm -hmm. so many people, we hope, but certainly disabled folks are part of the audience and they seem to be connecting with in a way that is really nice and gratifying. I found Justin Cooley's character incredibly moving in that way. I should say that, you know, he clearly, you know, being this nerdy kid who couldn't connect from what I recall at school, didn't have a secure home base. I mean, I, you know, I, I felt that character was, was also incredibly poignant. I would, I would also Jump in to say um, we all have an aging disease because we're all aging. We're aging as we talk here, and I think the this idea of how how the show in inside otherness also s- seems to really resonate, and we worked hard for that. But it also there is not one person who sees this show who is not um, isn't facing this idea that our stay is temporary. And I think it's not a fun thing to to think about. And in some ways it is so necessary a thing to think about that you are here. Um, and, and then at some day you, you are not, and, and it can be a hilarious ride. Uh, if you, if you sort of put a, a value on that and, and understand both things, how, how hard that is to think about and how wonderful it is to value something when you know how rare it is that, mm-hmm. um, that, that, you know, when you really, and I think it's why we read through, I definitely read through our town is like, does anybody really, really know? And I think that play like David's work asks us to just have a great time, even when it's hard. Know that just like, like the run of, of, of anything we, we have, 
life is a limited run. And, and that's some, there's something quite wonderful about that. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Seth character specifically because, and I have now confessed this, that is the character that is closest to me. I've never come closest <laughs> to putting myself on stage. And so, what right. you're, so what you're seeing up there, all of his obsessions, the anagrams, the Tolkien, the Dungeons and the Dragons, although it's more in the play, like that, that is the kid who I was, the kid who you know, may think in a, you know, not typical way, whose brain might work in a slightly different way, who feels outside of things and a weirdo. That That is who I was. And that's true of everybody in the play. Certainly Kimberly is, you know, different in other ways, but even the chorus, like we could have put Kimberly and Seth in a school with the popular kids, but that was not something that we were interested in exploring. We wanted kids that were just as much outsiders as as Kim and Seth are. And that they became a reflection of who Kim is, as well as who Kim will never become, because their lives will go on and they'll mm-hmm. have bright, shiny futures, and she won't. And so all of those kids, Kim, Seth, and the quartet, they're all working in the same universe, and they're all extensions of me. <laughs> but I hope mm-hmm. extensions of all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, mortality certainly figures very poignantly in the show in that sense that, you know, these kids are, I forget exactly, there's a beautiful line or lyric about growing older as opposed to... Oh, oh it's the greatest like, lyric. Yeah, why am I... Growing oh, older God. is your cure. Yes. But, I mean, Growing older is my affliction, growing older is your cure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was really striking. Uh, well, you. Kimberly's parents are also key characters in the show, and they are flawed, to put it mildly. But one of the lovely things about the show is that I think every character is ultimately drawn with compassion. Um, even the wacky Anne, she might not be very sympathetic, but she's not loathsome, you know, um, at the end of the show. Um, maybe the things she does are, <clears throat> excuse me, was it important for you to strike that balance? Uh, well, yeah, we wanted the characters to be dimensional and relatable, and uh, we wanted people to empathize with them, even if they do horrible things. And right. um, we hope that as ill-equipped as the parents are, let's say, and as badly as they behave sometimes, I, I hope that, you know, most audience members can see like, oh, their bad behavior is grounded in, in lots of things. One is the fact, look, they, they were teenage kids. They were teenagers themselves when they had this kid. They were not prepared or equipped for what came after. They're in a bit of arrested development, but also they're terrified of losing their daughter. And so Patty's narcissism, which, you know, is infuriating, especially if you love Kimberly, like why is this woman behaving this way? We, we might understand it a little bit better uh, during father time where we see in the dark of night, she's expressing her greatest fear, which is I'm going to lose my child. I'm going to run mm-hmm. out of time. The, all of her weird wackiness is grounded in this absolute horror and terror of losing her child. And buddy too, like he's, He's, he's drinking too much. Why is he drinking too much? Because he's terrified and he doesn't want to deal with what's really in front of him. And so he lives in this haze of, of beer because that's helping him get through the, through the day. Do I like yeah. that? No, that's terrible that he does that. He should be with his daughter and treat her better and keep some of his promises. But he's ill-equipped. And sometimes that's what happens in life. Sometimes our parents don't have the tools to raise us properly. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, true. But that that really resonated with me. Um, the fact that the character is just like the the mix, the balance of joy and uh, and despair and humor and all those things into something that's ultimately uplifting. Um, some of the most successful musicals of the past fifteen or twenty years have transferred from off Broadway from. Dear Evan Hansen and Hamilton to Spring Awakening, which was also nurtured uh, Spring Awakening by Atlantic Theater Company. But it's never a given, and I could point to some pretty recent examples of that. Um, I've seen some really nice long lines outside the Booth Theater, which I take to be a good sign. But did either of you have any questions about whether this show would attract a substantial Broadway audience? I mean, that's always a concern. I was waiting for Janine to talk, but she didn't. I was waiting for David to talk. Like we're, you know, we're always, I, I try not to be, I'm trying to be better about this, but I, I feel like I'm always BFF, which is braced for failure. And I'm trying to not um, be like that, but I think it's, it is a hard Sicilian thing, right? To, to, to lose. I do believe that shows like this, are so important to be on, on Broadway so that the diversity, when we talk about diversity, which is of course an incredibly important thing for representation, um, there is a very necessary part for, for smaller shows to be on Broadway. And part of it is, is that these shows will eventually go out into regional theaters and there they'll, um, you know, hopefully be produced, um, on tours and, uh, out in, um, colleges and schools and, and, and everything. And I think that, uh, it's, it's just an incredibly important part of musical theater to have these, you know, these kinds of stories and this kind of size. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, here's what we had on our side. Like we were going, we knew we were going to go into the booth, which is like a nice little intimate theater on Broadway that happens to be on Broadway. So I, I don't think any of us feared that it was like, it was going to get swallowed up in a Broadway house it felt like it belonged in that space. And I think it works beautifully in that space. And lucky for us, we got some really great reviews and we got a bunch of awards. So we had some of the paraphernalia that we needed to get into the space. Um, will it run there? Gosh, we hope so. You know, so far we've been doing really well. And luckily it's a small enough house that we don't have to sell out the way a big giant show does. Um, but it's a, it's a weird little show without any movie stars in it. So, you know, <laughs> cross our fingers and hope that the show speaks for itself and people want to see it. Yeah. Well, Janine, I was very intrigued by what you just said, actually, about uh, future productions, uh, you know, different types of productions. I'd love to see a show like this staged by a school eventually. I mean, it, it seems such a Oh, my wonderful. God. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, here's yeah. the thing. I, you know, I, I'm like, David always laughs, but I'm 61. And I grew up and came into this business at 19. This, I, I love what I do. I don't understand what I do, but I just love it. And I, I love this theater community. I've been a part of it for a very long time and it saved me. And the thought, you know, there are all these women I came up with, these incredible women. Um, they danced so hard in the 80s. Some of them just can't even turn their necks. They danced so hard. And, <laughs> and I, the thought of them getting a role, having roles written. That's why I love David's work. He writes these incredible roles for older women. And that in musical theater is, I think it's a very important thing, especially as it hopefully will go out into the regions that 
someone said this to us, remember David, the other day, like I can see these women, the um, community theaters, the favorite women who've played all these roles, getting able to do this and be part of a generation on stage where she'll be able to have, have this kind of time. And it made me really happy at the thought because I, I hadn't thought about it. I just want to add one thing. I do not laugh whenever Janine says she's 61. I don't know what you were talking about. <laughs> no, no, not because I'm 61, but because it's like, I, I feel like, you know, aging in the business is, is it's why the Oscars were so amazing to watch these women have that recognition. I found it really moving because sometimes I think older women in, um, you know, they're, they're not seen in the same way yes. uh, as the ingenue. And we, at, we have a woman in her sixties who's an ingenue. And I think it's just wonderful. I might laugh a little bit because you say it a little <laughs> bit, because you say it like I'm 50 years old, except you say I'm 61. <laughs> I'm 61 and three quarters. Good <laughs> for you. Good for you. Very proudly. Absolutely. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, thank you both so much for joining us. Um, it, as a way of sort of wrapping up, what have been your takeaways from this show as not just as artists, but as people who've been through, you know, are, are at the point, both of you, where, you know, I think at 40, we all start to think a little bit about mortality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how you started thinking about it at, when you were 10. <laughs> Well, yeah, but then I think everybody thinks about it when you're eight or 10 and then you forget about it for a while. Um, but the fact that obviously that that is a concern that I that I should have asked about more, you know, earlier in this in this uh, interview, I think. Um, uh, has that been something you've had caused to sort of, um, you know, mull over a little more in, in developing the show further, further in your case, David, especially because, you know, this show you first looked at the story 20 something years ago. Yeah, well, that's interesting because, you know, all those years ago, I was really latching onto the teenagers and my feelings about growing up with my crazy parents. And now it's 20 years later. And I think, oh, no, the parents aren't such monsters. And (laughs) death quickly approaching thing that feels a little closer than it did when I first wrote the play. So definitely my lens has changed. Um, But yeah, I mean, what's been most gratifying, actually, since that was the, the beginning of your question, is just seeing people's response to the shows. Um, uh, look, Janine and I have both written lots of shows. I'll only speak for myself. But the response that I'm getting from, from this show specifically is unlike anything that I've gotten before. Um, and people just seem wonderfully connected to it and wonderfully moved by it. And it's just incredibly gratifying. I'll tell you, and I've told this story a couple times before, but it, it defines my experience on the show. It, it, we were at the Atlantic during the end of the run, and I, we would sit in the back. And as the lights came up, people would come down the aisle, and I saw a very old man coming towards me, and he looked pretty angry. And he was <laughs> looking right at me, and I thought, oh, this is going to be one of those encounters where he's going to tell me how much he hated the show or whatever he wants to unload, because sometimes that happens in the back row. That's all right. And so he stopped right in front of me, as I knew he would, and he said, are you involved with this show? And I said, yes, I'm one of the writers. And he said, well, I just want you to know that I'm going to live my life more fully tomorrow. And I want to thank you for that. Oh, wow. Oh my and he, goodness. And he just walked away. And I just felt this welling of emotion coming up into my eyes. And I thought, what is happening? Who, who is this stranger that has affected me in this way? It was just 
an incredibly moving, wonderful experience that we seldom get as creators. And so when it happens, I, I hold on to it. And it's happened a few times on this show specifically in ways that it hasn't happened in other shows. So I find wow. that really wonderful. Yeah. Well, and you, Janine, have you had encounters like that? I have. And, um, you know, I, I think one of the great joys, I love that story, David, because I saw that man approaching him and I was ready to, you know, but it was it turned out to be one of those. But I've had a lot of people who have gone um, with their parents and their kids. And so they have these sort of three stages of life and they come out with something so different and something so similar from the experience. And mm-hmm. so they, they, that generation, I took my nephew, I took my nephew and my mom, you know, and I, it's been, that part is, has been really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And very, what you said, David, about living your life more fully, that's very our town, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's uh, uh, something they both, both these works share in common. That, that's a nice work to share something in common with, certainly. <laughs> so uh, so thank you both so much for your time. Um, I know you're really busy, and uh, with another award season coming up, I suspect you'll be busy again, and you're both working on other stuff, so we appreciate your joining us. Thanks so thank much. you so much. And for all things Broadway, and to find tickets to your next show, visit broadwaydirect.com. If you liked our show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And don't forget to share and rate Stage Door Sessions so that other theater fans can find us as well. This podcast is produced by Broadway Direct and the Nederlander Organization with Iris Chan, Aaron Krabasnik-Wagner, and Paul Art Smith, and hosted and produced by me, Elisa Gardner. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you again on Broadway.